I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us reptile extraordinaire, Matt Somerville, and Christy Jensen, wildlife supervisor from Hartley's Crocodile Adventures. Welcome, guys. G'day. Thanks hey. for having us. Now, you guys are on a bit of an adventure at the moment, is that right? Yeah, we are on a five-week herping adventure across Australia, so halfway through at this point, almost exactly. Yeah, you're nice. Not, you're not broke yet because you've decided to do it at a time when fuel is yeah. the most expensive yeah. it's ever been in Australia. I love paying $2.50 every single time <laughs> we fill up. Ridiculous. What are we up to, 11,000 kilometres oh. already, halfway through the trip? And yeah, we is just that don't, like don't two and a half weeks? Yeah. So you've driven down, obviously, from far north Queensland. Yep. Down to South Australia. Came down through Western Queensland first. Had to go and look for his favourite two species, so you got a, and ingrams. So oh, yeah, yeah. The big two to tick off. So you got a bucket list? Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely got a bucket list. Yeah. And you saw collets and ingrams? Yep. Saw collets, black snakes, saw ingrams, brown snakes after many, many, many trips and a lot of my life and finances. And it's super weird because it didn't seem to be that much out at the time as well, you were saying, was this? And, yeah. and then all of a sudden, you're seeing all these animals. Yeah, we yeah. saw not much in the way of species, but just high-end species. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It was great. And we yeah. got them in one, one night after the first other. First night of the tri- literally the first night of the trip and then the second night of the trip. So yeah, wow. That was a really good start. Yep, so that's my weeks two holy grails gone. Yeah. Yep. We don't have to go back to the black soil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if anyone's been out there, but it's not fun. We just spent a lot of no, time out No, it's miserable. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. How so? It's just dirt. Hot. Lots of dirt, lots of heat, lots of flies, lots of mosquitoes when we were out there because it's been flooding and vast expanses of nothingness. Mm, wow. Where one of my favourite snakes lives. Sold. Yeah. <laughs> Good for a two-week trip. Yeah. Wow. You, yeah. should, you should be on the tourism board. That was yeah. Yeah. great, Matt. Yeah. Winton should employ me. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything special in South Australia you're hoping to see? It's mostly Steve. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. the right answer. Like Steve Crawford, <laughs> right Steve. Yeah. No, different Steve. Different. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not really. It wasn't anything in particular we came here for. We've sort of just been over to Western Australia. I wanted to see Southwestern carpet pythons. That was my last... Aussie mainland python to see in the wild. We managed to see two of them while we were there, which was great. Mm. And then we've just been coming back across the Nullarbor and thought we'd stop in and pay you two a visit. How amazing is that? You've seen every Australian python. Hasn't come easy. Like, no, I bet it hasn't because when you think (laughs) of Ruffy's, yeah, must have been the hardest one. Yeah, Ruffy's is the hardest one to get to, not the hardest one to find. They weren't easy but they weren't hard when mm. we were there. Um, Owen Pellies were probably the hardest for me. How many of those have you seen? One. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 shut up. <laughs> I may have seen We can't two. all just walk into the car park and there's just two there for you. <laughs> yeah. No, it took me six six trips to see an Owen Pelly. Yeah, right. Two, mm. just two trips. But anyway. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> a lot of people hating on me right yes. now. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of herpers out there. Yeah. Just, no, what an, an amazing experience. And I want to do more of that, but um, not... Not while fuel's as much well, as it is at not, the moment. Not the way that... I think I'm 
probably missed my time of being able to do what you guys do. Like you've jumped in your car and you've just gone, we're doing four or five weeks, whatever, traveling. I mean, you've driven from Cairns in Queensland to South Australia, across to Western Australia, back to South Australia. And you're like two, two and a half weeks. Yeah, I like to drive. Right. <laughs> oh, we just, did all of Alice and all of We did Alice yeah, Springs and all, all of that as well, just to chuck a bit of an extra detour it's in there. just, I mean, I think amazing. That think, is amazing. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if I could do it. I think you've got to be crazy. So well done. It's good fun. Like, I mean, we like often it. slip away and jump on a plane and hire a car because you can be back in time and doesn't cost as much money. But I remember driving up to Darwin from South Australia, 3,000 Ks, and you see so much more. You see the country change and you appreciate the habitats. There is something to be said for flying in and just seeing stuff straight away, don't get me wrong, but if you can do it, you've got the time. It's, it's good just to fun. see, yeah, good to see yeah. the countryside, good to see how it changes from yeah. year to year as well. Even like I've been herping now for probably, I don't know, 12 years, like full-on herping for 12 years, and just to see how much places have changed in 12 years and not always in a good way as well. A lot of places are just wrecked mm. over years, mostly from cattle and that sort of stuff. But even the animals that you used to see in those places years ago just don't exist there anymore. Or animals you didn't see there for years and years all of a sudden are in decent numbers there after a rain event or something. It's just cool to see that stuff when you're traveling around and just to see how places progress over time or decline as well, which mm. is pretty good for Australia. Mm. Yeah. Mm. If there's progression, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you only, you only hear of the decline, I guess, most of the time. Which is probably a well, higher percentage. There of is a lot of decline. You see a lot of decline when you travel around the country. It's pretty sad. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. So we try to focus on the positives here. The Aussie Wildlife Show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We won't get too depressing. No. Um, <laughs> no, but no, but it's true. You got to you got to address the decline. There's no question. Um, so where to from here, guys? Uh, good question. Thank you. We make it up as we drive. Like my questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, <so> <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, not really sure. We'll probably maybe go down and do a little bit through Victoria, maybe some of the highlands. I haven't really done much of that yet. And then back up the coast, make our way home and back mm. to work in, yeah, two and a half weeks. So Yeah, that would be nice. We don't really have a schedule. We just start driving and see, see where, where we, we turn end up. up. I'm, so, I'm so jealous. So how did Hartley's deal with both of you guys leaving at the same time like they'd be down two really important yeah, people <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got a pretty good team there so matt looks after the reptile department and he sorted his crew out and i got rosters and all of that sort of fun stuff sorted before i left so hopefully we don't go back to too much chaos we mm. head back and we're there for a week and then school holidays kicks off so it'll be complete bedlam yeah uh, after that but um, no, it's it's fairly quiet. It's the off season for us at the moment. We couldn't do this in the middle of peak tourism or anything. But it's quiet before the storm hits. Come Easter. Yeah, so it's the wet season up there at the moment, isn't it? It is. It hasn't been all that wet. Okay. Over the last couple of days, I've had some decent rain. But before that, we've actually had a shocking wet season. It's been really, really dry and hot. A lot hotter than normal, which is quite unfortunate. Ah. The climate's changing a lot up there. It's not the big wet seasons that we used to get anymore, which is a shame. Not as wet as it's, as it's supposed to be. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Hartley's Crocodile Adventures. I I went there a few years ago, and I absolutely loved it. 
some amazing yeah, awesome. place. You guys do a great job there. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think it is one of the it's one of the nicest places that I've been to as well. Not because you guys work there, you're saying now. The only <laughs> reason it's it is. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's much nicer at the moment. A couple of weeks, it gets worse again. <laughs> no, I, I had time there, and, and Matt, you talked, you showed me around, you showed me lots of stuff behind the scenes. We went in. With the Komodo, which, I mean, I never take that for granted. That's just awesome. He took me on a boat ride. Like, if anyone's up there, the, the place is amazing. You, you go out, feed the big crocs, um, show off the big crocs. Um, it's just an awesome place. Native animals and exotics. Burmese pythons. Come on. Oh, you hate Burmese pythons. <laughs> the world's worst snake. Oh. <laughs> All right. That's here a big we go. call, isn't it? It's a big call. <laughs> Even the Sorry, flower pot ca- snake. In captivity. <laughs> in captivity. <laughs> I love them. But no, it was an awesome place and you're very lucky to work there. Yeah, I think we are. We yeah. take it, really it for nice granted place. sometimes, but it is a nice place. It's a good yeah. place to work in a good part of the world. We get looked after pretty well. Mm. And we get free, a lot of free rain on what we do with the animals in their enclosures and how we set things up and what animals we bring in and what we breed. Um, what Very we progressive wanna... as yeah. far as zookeeping goes it and is. progressing animal husbandry and letting the keepers make decisions on what can be done with animals and just making things better, which yeah. mm. all zoos should be going that way. That's so good to hear. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think Especially for zoos, a privately owned zoo. Yeah, yeah. but it's, it's a lot easier for a privately owned zoo. Yeah, than like, there's yeah. not as much red tape yeah. like Toronto yeah. or Adelaide or, or something mm. that are governed mm. a hell of a lot now. And they, so. like we said, with good management that allows us to actually implement these new yeah, ideas. It's, it's good when management trusts the animal keepers yep. to do what's right. Well, we are talking about this morning, weren't we? There's so many private keepers that have more yep. success because they're with the animals all the time and they don't have that red tape mm. and they might do something that might be a little bit out of the box by zoo standards, but it's successful, yep. especially mm. when we're talking endangered species breeding and things. Um, so that's really great to hear. Yeah, where sometimes those bigger zoos just can't do that. They're under too much pressure to make sure that you're keeping them exactly as they are in the wild or, or you know, something that you have to do, put them in a big enclosure, which we all love big enclosures. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes in, uh, as a, you know, captive breeding guys are more successful because I think because of that governing stuff in a big zoo. But yeah, you're still lucky in your yeah, private Yeah, definitely that we can. Do a lot of implement a lot oh, of these new changes. That. Yeah, I mean, you can go in with a Komodo dragon. Yeah, you can. You know, wow. He you can let amazing. me grab a Burmese python and hold it. Yeah, yeah. I put it around my neck, which probably probably I wouldn't have gone down at other places. But no, <laughs> it's fine. When, you're with me. <laughs> when you mentioned the big crop talks that you guys do, I reckon everybody that goes up north should see a big crop talk at one of the facilities like you, you guys, because when you see how big they are. And you hear that massive pop sound they make when they close their mouth. It's impressive, hey? It's so impressive. And when, and when you're like, you're walking along the beach and they've got a placard saying, there was a croc sighted here two days ago, you kind of just go, oh, I hope I see it. But when you see one of those shows, you kind of go, all right, let's be croc safe, you know, because these things are huge. Yeah. And our shows are pretty loose. Uh, we're one of the last parks in Australia still doing really interactive croc shows. Uh, we get close and we show exactly how these guys work and how, you know, quickly, because people think large crocodiles can't move quickly. That's very misleading. Mm. These guys can spin on a dime and there's a lot of power and a lot of speed and a lot of force behind them. So I think getting people up really close, showing them that sort of behaviour and how these guys react is a great educational tool for people that aren't familiar with crocodiles. Yeah, and I think that risky behaviour 
like it's calculated risk, but that risky behavior grabs people's attention mm. and that makes them listen. And then you can push your education side of things through doing risky behavior. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I think it works yeah. very well instead of someone just standing there outside a fence saying, this is a crocodile. It can do this, this, and this. As the crocodile sits there doing nothing, mm. when they see the crocodile actually doing something, it pushes home just how dangerous these animals actually can be. Because they can yeah. be bloody dangerous. That's exactly yeah. the effect they had on me. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and even you- in the main show, like, you know, Hagrid, the, our main show, the attack, croc attack guy, he will cruise up and people won't be able to see him and we'll show him exactly how deep the water is where he's sitting. It could be a foot of water and you've just completely um, hidden a 4.2-metre crocodile, Yeah. Uh, you know, in a foot of water. And that's a really good to show people that even shallow water can hide a big animal. It's ama- I mean, if they really wanted to eat people, it's amazing there aren't more people eating. I mean, around the world, apparently, there's a thousand people killed by crocs, but that's countries where they don't have taps and they've that's got to walk down the water. Countries, yeah. yeah, it's where they're forced into the water. Yeah, there's no, there's no choice for them. Are we are we like necessarily on their menu? It's a bit like sharks where they go, oh, it's a person, gross. I think it's opportunistic. Yeah, they they're not like a shark that just sort of just comes in, has a bite, and goes, nah, I'm not that interested. I think a croc will readily eat you if it has the chance. But it's not going to spit you out. It's anyway. not going to spit you out. If you kill it, you're going to eat it mentally. Yeah, yeah, yeah type <laughs> of thing. But at the same time, they're not going around just targeting people all the time. I think you've really got to do something stupid or just be in the wrong spot at the wrong time to actually get taken by one. Like they're all around mm-hmm. in North Queensland. They're just not out there targeting people. But you've got you've got to put yourself at risk. That's, yeah, it's don't really swim with easy. them. Just. Don't go in the water. Mm-hmm. Write that down, everyone. Yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. don't go in the water. <laughs> yeah. Stay a few metres back yeah. and you're good. Yeah. Well, when we come and saw you guys, um, we went to the Daintree and we went out to the reef and we had our stinger suits on and we all walked through the water to get onto the boat. I'm just like, is this like just thinking about the croc tour? <laughs> Probably Daintree North is where their numbers definitely start to increase uh, along the coastline, around the Cairns region, on the main beaches, swim between the flags in the stinger nets if it's that time of year. Uh, and and you're fine, but nowhere near river mouths. That's the hot spots. That's where they're coming in and out of. So stingers, jellyfish, and that scare the hell out of me. They're worse than crocodiles up there. It's yeah. probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't one, be swimming because of that. I hate them. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember um, snorkeling in Borneo. It was beautiful, crystal clear, and there was this. I mean, it was no more than five centimeter long. Little jellyfish in the water. I got up and went around the other side, got out, went around the other side of the island <laughs> yeah. to go back in snorkeling. I'm ju- I don't know what it is. I'm petrified of them. Sensible. You're probably the only sensible person there. Mm. Yeah. There was a girl stunned you, when we were on the reef um, and she was in a lot of pain. And they, they said to her, Look, it's not going to get any worse than this. Just hang in there, keep breathing. It's only going to get better. Well, that was probably a good way to think about it. Depends what species. Yeah, that's right. Don't tell her that. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, yeah this could the, get really bad. Yeah. <laughs> one of the young fellas at work. He got done by an Irukandji about probably two years ago That's now, worst, and he yeah. said it was not a good experience at all. It was mm. not, not pleasant, and he's the type of person as well that reacts to everything he gets stung or bitten mm. by, Yeah, but he was fine in mm. the end. Yeah, but not everyone's fine. No. No. It was mm. just a fatality two weeks ago or something just before he left from a box jellyfish. Oh, was it? Yeah. Don't get to hear stuff like that, yeah. Which is, I, I it's not, guess, all right. It's, it's not the best. Yeah, it's not news. as interesting in the news as no. a crocodile attack or no. a shark attack. But that's the first one in quite a few years, I think. So it's not super, yeah, right. super wow. common. See, I'm right to be scared. Mm. Oh, 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I was brought up with jellyfish on the beach in Great Yarmouth or something in England. <laughs> That's perfectly harmless. So are you English, Steve? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> I've just noticed. <laughs> and they were harmless. You can do what you want with them kind of thing. But I, I don't know what it is. I'm just really scared of them. Crocs yeah. are the easy ones to avoid. Mm. Well, me and Adrian were in Northern Territory once. And where were we at... Um, uh, Berry Springs. Yeah, uh, we were at Berry Springs. Yeah. Is that where we were looking in the water and, and watching the archer fish, and all of a sudden we saw some bubbles come up and thought, "Yeah, let's go." <laughs> Just in case, it's <laughs> possibly a crocodile. <laughs> we'll go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just in case. So we are sensible. Yeah. Uh, I've got to ask you, at Hartley's, do you guys keep any tree wallabies? Not yet. <laughs> Hold on. Do you mean tree kangaroos? Oh well, I'll correct you there. Ah. Um, so. Sorry, they are known as tree kangaroos. I'm trying to start. Something. I'm trying to get the word out there that they're not kangaroos; they're wallabies, because their their closest relative is, as you guys know, rock wallabies, which we call rock wallabies, don't we, for a reason? Because they're not kangaroos. Tree wallabies. Just going to put that out there. You're glad you got that in there. I'm so happy I got that in there. <laughs> <laughs> start it. Yeah, we can end this now, guys. If there's yeah, anything it's else, it's yeah. it's <laughs> it's the only reason you wanted us on here. Yeah, this you can was about push your agenda. <laughs> yeah. No, we do not have any tree wallabies. Maybe one day. One day, it's we'd like to have them. They'd be about good. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They're another um, iconic far north Queensland species. Well, that's right. I mean, Australia has two species: uh, the Bennett's right up north, and then the Lumholtz is yeah. the more yep. southern one. But they're both. North Queensland. Yep. Um, but you never, at zoos, you always only ever see the one from the Goodfellows from Papua New Guinea. It's funny, we can't seem to have Australian tree kangaroos in any of our zoos. I'm not aware of any. I don't know if you guys know of any. There is there are Lumholtz at Rainforest, Rainforest Station. Station, I think uh, in Coranda, and Wildlife Habitat in Port Douglas. Oh, sorry. I meant outside of Queensland. Oh, outside sorry, of but Queensland. Yeah. No, in no. Queensland. I don't think there is yeah, any outside okay. of Queensland, but they have them. And as far as I know, they're the only two wildlife parks that do have them. Okay. I could be wrong. I doubt it, Matt. I doubt that. <laughs> I say they're the ones. They're the only ones that have them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're always they're rescued animals that can't be released. So they're Lumaholts, are they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they'd be no, the ones. There's that, no Bennets. In yeah, Canada, okay. Because yeah. they're just further up where there's not the people and. Yeah, Bennets are north of the Daintree to yeah, Shipton's okay. flat. Yeah, they're very, very hard to really see in the wild. Really hard. That's another species. That's We've another. Spent a lot of time looking for and have yet to see one. Yeah, okay. and then friends come up and just see them straight away every time. <laughs> and it hurts a <laughs> lot. Let's go and see who's going to in the car park. Yeah, I can imagine, like, when I went to the Daintree, like, if you spotlight around Adelaide and you hold the torch by your eyes and there's a ringtail possum, there's a brushtail possum, there's a huntsman spider, there's an owl, everything's kind of there, open canopies. You go to the Daintree and it's so thick and you're looking up and there's the bottom of a tree. Daintree's yeah. a hard spot to look for wildlife. It is. Very, very difficult. Yeah. I never even saw boys up there. I saw Not two. Not surprised, Steve. No. <laughs> <laughs> I saw two. Just one. I saw two boys. <laughs> Oh, you saw yeah. too. But we had a tour guide, though, I'll, so I'll that's take why. that bit out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of northern bandicoots. And we've got the southern brown bandicoot here, but the northern, that's the biggest. And I didn't realize how big they were. I thought there was like, what's that little dog thing running yeah, across the road? They're everywhere. Huge. They're very common. Yeah. yeah. They're big, they're big yeah. fellas. Lots of different species of possum up there as well. Striped possums are pretty common all through the Dane Tree. All through Cairns, even even in suburbia, they're around. I never saw anything. Once in you Cairns. get up the Tablelands, yeah, yep. Herbert River possums, Lemuroid ringtails, uh, Daintree River ringtail, Daintree, yeah, on Mount Lewis, they're fairly common. Daintree River ringtails, Green ringtail, Green ringtails. There's a lot of possums. Yeah, there's coppery brush tails around. 
the odd ring. I don't see ringtails very often, but they are around as well. They're in the drier stuff out a little bit further west. Yeah, but it's a good spot for mammals. On the tablelands, probably more so than the daintree. Yeah, oh, not, not the daintree. None of those possums are in the daintree except oh, for the stripes. So we get up to the tablelands. There's some good spots up there. That that should be the next place I go. That and mm. you mentioned Ruscale pythons before. That was up in the Kimberleys, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Because when you first came here, my little baby rock wallaby style bender was hopping around, and and I my one of my favourite factoids is I've just learnt that he's the same size at the moment as a monjon, which and I thought I was. Wasn't showing off. I'm just proud of this little face. I find it interesting. You were showing little, off. I was showing off. Um, I was like, yeah, he's the same size as the smallest of the rock wallabies, the Monjon, which is only one kilo. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we saw shitloads of those. And I'm like, oh, my God, get out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. That's what yeah. people always think of Matt and, and Christy as doing a lot of reptile stuff. And it, but you're absolutely not just all about reptiles. No, it's I like all that. animals. All yeah, animals, kind yeah. of plants, habitats. Um, yes. Yeah, reptiles are just the main thing. Mm. That's what got don't me say into it. And have yeah, that, oh, no. get yeah. Going. <laughs> no, I need to I'm into everything. <laughs> yeah, even on even on this trip we're doing now, I've been trying to see mammals that I've never seen before. I managed to see numbats in the wild, um, honey possums. Oh, you I saw honey possums. Saw honey possums well done. as well. Yeah, um, a few other little bits and pieces, but they were the two main ones that I really, really wanted to see. That's that's really good. Two very unique animals there. Yeah, we used to have numbats here. Not yeah. at my house, but but in this general in SA, area. yeah, just yeah. on the periphery of the hills, I think. Yeah, yeah, they're very restricted. They're we couldn't believe how restricted. Like I knew where they were in the two little tiny pockets over in WA, but once you see those pockets, the habitat tiny. is nothing. Tiny little like Dryandra is so little. Wow. Yeah. We've got a couple of ecologists from Australian Wildlife Conservancy coming on the show soon, and they do an amazing job. They obviously, as you know, they fence off parts of Australia that generally old growth stuff. Um, and put back animals like the numbats. And that's the only, only numbats I've ever seen were pseudo wild at Yukamara Sanctuary, just about an hour from here in the Mallee. Um, and they're just tiny, they're little dudes. They're really little dudes. For those that don't know, a numbat's a little, it's a carnivorous marsupial, but it just eats termites. It's unusual because it's diurnal. So it follows the termite veins in the ground. It's got a sticky uppy tail that's really fluffy. So it looks like a little radio control car. And it's got a <laughs> massive tongue. I videoed one yawning and its tongue come out like longer than any monitor tongue i've ever seen i'm like huh um they don't have a pouch which is kind of weird more teeth than any other marsupial um but they taste like most other marsupials it's weird isn't it? no, weird. i'll take that out don't got, worry and they've got wheels sorry poking up your towel like the radio control <laughs> they remind me of like little meerkats the way they behave with perch up and they run with the tail up and I love meerkats mm. yeah that's exactly that's what they acted like they, like a meerkat it'd run yeah. along the log and then it would stand up and look around real quickly not long enough for me to take a decent photo of it but you've got a pretty decent photo of it that's what no, I it's not by my yeah. standards <laughs> it's not crisp enough where did you see the honey possum uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name of this place. Oh, I think it, I think it's <laughs> Shane's Beach. It's C H E Y N E S. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, we'll go with Shane's Beach. Shane's Beach, but I Shane's saw it there. Or Shane's, Shane's or Shane's or, yeah. or I don't know. Uh, I got one at night. Yeah, I tried it in the afternoon, and I got nothing. And then I went out again at night with red torch because I got told they were very shy when it come to white light. I walked around for red torch for. Hours and hours and hours. I saw one briefly and that was it. And then the following morning I got up at sunrise and walked the Heath country where there was Banksias flowering. And I eventually got one that saw me, darted down into the 
into the heath and I just sat and waited and eventually it came back up and started feeding again and I just watched it for 15, 20 minutes and then just got closer and closer and closer till eventually I could get photos of it. Wow. And that saw me and froze, which was even better. Wow. I managed to get some decent pictures and then I pushed the friendship a little bit too far and stepped on some on a bit of scrub. It's my made some noise. <laughs> 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 and then it just went gone straight down into the heath, never to be seen again. And about the size of a mouse, aren't they? Yeah, about probably they're probably ten what? grams. Yeah. Little. Yeah, smaller than I expected them to be, to be honest. Yeah. yeah little ten gram tiny thing that was just running darting around just licking Banksias. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that whole southwest part of WA is fascinating. It's stunning down there too. Yeah. It was the first time I'd been to that full that proper south coast area. Very nice. There's quokkas down there. Yeah, at Two People's Bay. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't go there. We'd already gone past it when the time I f- re- figured out that that's where they were. Didn't go back. Probably should have. But Next time. Oh, well. Um, Get them on Rottnest nice and easy. Yeah. Well, that's that's true too. Um, and Gilbert's Pottery. Yeah. Yeah, they're on an island just off that beach, yeah, apparently. Yeah, they, they, so they have been, put so some been told. And yeah. on the mainland too. Oh, they are. They rediscovered on a quokka survey. Okay. Well, there you go. I didn't know that. What's that really rare bird they got down there at Two People's Bay? Western bristlebird. Is that it? I'm pretty sure that's yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's one of like one of the rarest birds in the world. Yeah, I didn't see them, but they're there. <laughs> that's great. Now, like Steve said, it's great that you're into the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. Um, and that's important to zoos. That's what we always say. We always talk about that. Like people go, oh, zoos, animals in cages, blah, blah. And you can meet people halfway, but the positives far outweigh the negatives. And like you got into reptiles, probably not. Probably from having a pet bearded dragon or I just, something. I got into reptiles because I was just fascinated with animals as a kid, more okay. so dinosaurs than anything else. I was the stereotypical dinosaur kid. Yeah. And then it just sort of branched off to lizards, snakes. I got really into birds at one point, especially parrots and that type of thing. I kept parrots. It was good because my parents encouraged my love of animals. They didn't sort of try and suppress it or anything like that. Dad built me a bird aviary in the backyard. I had some parrots and quail and that sort of stuff. And then- I kept fish, and then I was never allowed to have a snake for a long time, which is a lot of people's standard story as well. And then eventually the parents caved, and it just became an obsession from that point. I started keeping a few things, and then I went back to my childhood of catching lizards and stuff, and then it went extreme, and it's consumed my adult life now. It is. I want to see everything, every Australian reptile. That's it what is I'm trying extreme. to do. And I think it's great, but I just like. Uh, just a, a herping day for you if you were travelling around. Not for you, Christy, because if you're sensible, you'll be asleep for half of this. I try. <laughs> Is that what do you do? You drive somewhere. You, like I would drive somewhere like we go to Kakadu. We'll, we'll stay in a hotel, a few beers, lunch, nice time, relax by the pool. Yeah, there's none of that. Go That's out that. for a couple That's of hours that. at relax. night. See two O and Pellies, come back to the hotel. <laughs> we can't all be that lucky. No. <laughs> What, what's your... Um, it depends on what I want to see. So, if, say, we're driving across the Nullarbor or something like we did a couple of days ago, I've got a couple of species that I haven't seen before. I used to just go out and just see whatever I'd see, and I was happy with that. Now, I've become obsessed with something I haven't seen. So, I, was like, oh, I want to see Nullarbor slender blue tongue. So, we'll hit this spot at this time of the day, and then I'll drive to, I don't know, I want to see... And the Anagurnia that lives on the rocky outcrop along the limestone coast there. So we'll drive to a spot where they could be 
and it could be a couple of hours between each spot. So we'll look around till we find the one I'm looking for, and then we'll drive to the next spot and the next spot, and then I'll say all in I want, one day, all in the one day, and then I'll say, all right, I want to be on this section of habitat at night, so I can see possibly see this species of snake in that area, and that section of habitat could be, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred kilometers away, and then we'll drive to get to that point, and you'll be there. I don't know, midnight type thing, and then hit that road and lap it backwards and forwards and I'll get out and walk and look around through the habitat and see if I can find it. And like I said, you become obsessive with and it. we get a couple hours sleep when we get up and do it all again the next and day. And we do it all again. <laughs> so it's not yeah. uncommon. I mean, we're, we're pushing oh, a thousand Ks a day most of the time. Yeah. It's odd for us to have. We had a couple of days where we did like two, three hundred kilometres and that was like, what is this? My, my best day ever is 1,800 kilometres in a single day. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, that takes it out of you. You don't get much sleep. No. In that. No, you don't there's not much sleeping. There's sometimes where on trips we'll drive to four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, trying to look for a certain species of snake, and then get to the habitat where there's a different species of snake, but that snake might be diurnal. So you've got to be out first thing in the morning before it gets too hot, so we'll sleep for an hour and then get up again and hit that section of road again first thing in the morning and then maybe sleep a little bit during the day if it's cool enough to do that. That is insane commitment, but that's why you're that's probably you got to try and see, see every species. Yeah, it's of what you have to do in Australia. Yes. It's, wow. You got to put in the effort. It's not just going out there and things fall at your feet like Owen Pelly's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a different. <laughs> <laughs> you know how much time I spent walking around that escarpment, sweating to death, trying uh, to see those things. It won't be anywhere near what I spent. <laughs> 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 you wouldn't I'm, have I'm even finished your beer before you got hours? there, would you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've been, I've been lucky. But that's what happens sometimes. Yeah. That's like this trip, the first night of the trip I've done, I couldn't even tell you how many trips I've done for Colette snakes and the amount of time we've spent driving those roads and walking through habitat and just, I've been doing it for probably 10 years targeting that yeah. species a couple of trips a year. And then this time, first night, first snake of the night, as soon as it got dark, was a collet snake. It wasn't even that. Night. It wasn't even dark was, yet. Like, what was it quarter, no, like, quarter to eight or something? Yeah, quarter to eight at night. And then I saw it out of the side of the car. I, was, I lost my okay, mind. Well, I, I kind of, I, my emotional, because I was going to say that would be really emotional, put that much effort and you finally see something. For me, that would be super emotional. But I think. I think he squealed. Did he? <laughs> what did it sound like? I would yeah. never. I would never. We will leave that in. <laughs> um, I remember with the with the Owen Pelly, I think I just went really quiet. I don't think I probably said hardly anything. I was just amazed in and yeah. in awe and, and couldn't really believe that we'd just seen yeah, I, I definitely I think I went completely. I quiet. definitely did a bit of a scream when I got my own Pelly. I was with a couple of good friends up there. I was actually up there for my thirtieth birthday a few few years ago, mm. and we were searching, and it was my sixth trip up there and climbing around the escarpment. And I sat down to have a rest because it was so hot, and I was scanning the tree with my head torch and spotted a snake in the tree, but it was only small. I could only see a little bit of it, and I was like, oh, it's "Just another children's python. We'll go over and have a look." And I went over and, and it was an old Pelly and I, I screamed. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, an old Pelly. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a, yeah. Yeah. And one of the other fellows was hundreds and hundreds of meters away and he comes sprinting up. He'd heard me screaming and yeah, we're cheering and yahooing and high fiving each other and hugging and mm. 
That's making, making out nights. <laughs> Apart from that last bit, I was going to say that's very similar to Tim Faulkner's just, just story. Just so you know, I'm not coming to. Uh, <laughs> I thought that, I thought to that would encourage you. <laughs> Uh, Tim Faulkner told a very similar story apart from the, the last bit. Um, the, he just left that when, bit out. Yeah, yeah, he must have done. He it. Just it left it out. Yeah. I was embarrassed to go obviously what, It's obviously what happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine. I mean, I am, because I come from England and I spent a majority of my keeping life in England, I, I it's only the last three or four years that I've actually gone, I really need to get out there and see more. So it really does. But I'm kind of like, I'm not old. I'm only... F- 40-odd, 46, I have to think then. I think I'm 46. It's 2022. <laughs> got to do the math at this age. I'm 46. Um, and it's only the last few years, but I kind of like my right knee's knackered and, and all that. That makes me think, oh, I probably couldn't do it. You know, I probably you can couldn't do, do, your, you can do it. You can do it. But I could, yeah. I probably could when you're out there actually doing it. You you'd, you forget about all those things yeah. when you're out there. And, and you just have to make adjustments. Like, mm. I have chronic illness, but... We make adjustments so that I can still go out. And She's saying she doesn't whinge about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've just never understood why people keep these animals but have no interest in seeing them in the wild. To me, mm. that's just – I don't understand I, it at yeah. all. See, three or four years ago, I would have said, yeah, well, because we keep them in yeah. boxes. It's so different to see one in the bush well, than yeah. it is to see it in a box yeah, at home. It's just, yeah. And then it changes your mindset on how you keep yeah. them at mm. home as well. Yeah. Which is like a I keep reptiles so different to how I used to keep reptiles mm. because of – how I've seen things in the bush. Yeah. And you see that animal out in the bush and then you go, what the hell am I doing at home? Why am I not doing that for it? Mm. And you go home and you change things and you have success. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, especially with like the, the lizards and things. Like you mm. see some of those. The temperatures yeah. that they bask yeah. at. Yeah. 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 Need to change some of that stuff. How much sure. UV they're getting. And what they're sort of eating stuff. and how frequently, mm. uh, what the habitat looks like, how... How much more muscular and slender things yeah. look in the wild yeah. compared during captivity, and that's super interesting stuff to learn and, and need to take into captivity. Um, I think we still need to bear in mind that we're, it's in captivity. Yeah, you can't put too much effort into trying to do something that might actually be hard to change. But yeah, you, sometimes you can go too far and make things worse. Yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's a definitely you can't a there. The nullarbor in a box. Mm. It doesn't work that no, way. No, you have got to put but, twenty mm. industrial fans on it and. <laughs> Make the temperature swing 30 yeah. degrees Celsius in a day. Us, yeah, same as us keeping in South Australia, like when you come up to Cairns and the, the humidity and then we have something, or you go to um, Iron Ranges with the greens and humidity and whatever and you come down to South Australia and go, right, I've got to mimic the humidity. Yeah, see, I think if I, li- <laughs> if I live down here, I'd have to change the, completely change the way I keep reptiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you would. Because completely. You can't, you can't mimic humidity somewhere as dry as South Australia yeah. unless you start pressurizing rooms and things Which is like that unrealistic so you've got a kind of yeah i mean it, it in captivity it never makes sense to me that things like a blackhead a northern territory blackhead or or olive or something in captivity most of the time we have to lower the temperature so low to be able to get them to breed whereas in the wild you're kind of like oh it doesn't it's always 30 degrees 32 degrees the whole time why why have we got a getting really cold in captivity. And I think it's because of things like, and this is just my analogy of it, it's because of things like over there, they see really big differences in air pressures. Um, so I think we can't show them those big differences in air pressures because we don't get the storm fronts down here that you'd get up there or the the hot, uh, the, the wet and dry seasons. So we kind of have to make 
something a big difference. And to me, it's, it's that the temperature thing instead that we're kind of making them switch that, you know, flip that switch to say it's breeding season. I don't know. It makes yeah, no sense yeah, to me I've, with I've some often species. Wondered about that one as well with blackheads and olives and trying to get them so cold to get them to breed. Like my olives out there, I can't breed them indoors in mm. cans. They will not breed for me. I put the enclosures out on my back deck, breed every time without yeah. fail. Even though my snake room's got a big wide open window and the enclosure's right in front of the window, for it's some reason I quite. cannot breed them indoors. I don't know if that's just me. Or probably. What, probably just me. <laughs> but <laughs> putting them outside makes all the difference and they yeah. breed every single time. Mm. I don't know if it's just a, it gets a couple of degrees cooler or something yeah. out there or, or they're getting more airflow air or air something's or different in that room. Yeah, yeah in that yeah, area. It's just, it's just tiny little things yeah. that make a difference like that as well. Yeah, mm. it's, a, it's a strange And it does thing. get fairly cool in some of those places that you get olives and blackheads. Like, mm. olives go all the way down to Winton, Bladensburg in Queensland. Which it would, gets yeah. zero mm. down there of a night in winter. Mm. But, it's, but Western the, Queensland with blackheads gets cold during yeah. the winter. Yeah, but then obviously Darwin's not getting that cold. No. And there's olives and blackheads all around that area. Yeah. The Kimberley gets cold. With certain sections of the Kimberley can hit single digits. Mm. It oh, did yeah. when we were up there. Yeah. And that, that's a learning curve as well, isn't it? Because like like deserts, like deserts you know, where you, where you look cold. at yeah, where you look mm. at bread lies, and and years and years ago, not many people could actually breed bread lie because they just kind of went red hot, so they were keeping yeah. them red hot pretty mm. much all year round, and and you know until you really go back to basics and say, well, actually, it freezes in the desert. Um, I think that temperature fluctuation is really important. I think it's something we don't look at enough mm. with reptiles. We tend to think it's a reptile that needs to be hot and it needs to be hot twenty four seven. Well, no, that's not how they work out in the wild, mm. they're not at 32 degrees consistently day and night, 12 months of the year. Um, so I think it's important when you start replicating those cycles, so shortening daylight periods, shortening the amount of heat and lowering temperature during winter months, I think you do tend to see that flow-on effect in terms of health, longevity and breeding. Mm. And again, that I guess is... That's why we go out and have a look at these places and see what they're like, see what the microclimates are like and microenvironments, like where are they sitting during the cooler months, what are they doing out there, um, and then trying to work out a way to replicate that as much as we can uh, and seeing the ongoing effects from that as well. Mm. Yeah, one thing I always find interesting as well is the temperatures you find snakes at with food mm. in their bellies or when they're out hunting sitting in ambush. Like we got a rough scale python in the Kimberley. That was in ambush when it got to seven degrees. Fuck you, Steve. That was no jealousy out. at all. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, seven degrees. This thing's yeah, well, out in ambush looking for food. Yes. And consistently night after night. It was that it, that cold every night. That snake degrees, was in the same yeah. spot every night. Yeah. But even there was um that olive came down to the campsite. Yeah, we got an olive python. That used to like apparently sitting used, down in ambush. Apparently, sat in the same spot all the time, trying to hunt quolls as they were going past. Mm. So they are still active in temperatures that we would assume nothing's going to be out looking for food. Um, so I think there's a lot about reptiles that we just we don't know. We haven't studied them in the wild effectively for long enough periods to see what they're actually doing year round. We just tend to think reptile needs heat. Yeah, pump it with heat. Um, and I think long-term pumping things with a solid temperature 24-7 just shortens lifespan. That's not how their bodies are built, how they're meant to design. They need periods of shutdown. They need to utilise the fat that they've built up in those 
good season and the hot season. Especially with our crap diet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, our diet's fantastic mm, for yeah. them. Um, they're not the most natural, but it's all we can provide, so that's what we do. But overfeeding, again, I think mm. is a huge thing for reptiles. The amount of morbidly obese pet pythons and beardies that you see is just atrocious, and no wonder they're only living for five to ten years, mm. whereas, you know, I mean, we're starting to see some of our snakes living well into their 30s now, so it shows this improved husbandry and understanding of how these guys actually work, we can increase those Yeah, we kind of hope that that is the more regular thing, that your snakes are getting to that 20, 30-year Yeah, exactly. Um, Even if you have bred them, they should still get there if you breed them sensibly. Yeah. Don't smash them every year to try and get eggs out of them. You're not power-feeding things to get them up to breeding age Mm. in 12 months or something crazy like that. People still see that as an achievement. Yeah. That's the bit I think doesn't sit right with me. No. Mm. Yeah, I bred right. it at 18 months old. Yeah, it'll probably live for five to years breed too. breed whenever you want, but the females need at least three years yeah. plus. Like, mm. And longer for some species. Like Even Antresia, it's always a third winter, two and a half years old, yeah. three and a mm. half years old. Um, yeah. But you see it on the internet now where people say, oh, what age can I breed my Antresia at? And you'll get some, some top breeders out there that will just, without even thinking, just go, 18 months. Like, really... It's not a lot of time. No. Technically, you can. Of course, yeah, yeah you can, but, you know. But what doesn't mean you should. <laughs> Are there longevity charts for, like, some of the reptiles like you get with the mammals, or is it not really no, too known? No, 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 they don't exist. No. People, a lot of people used to say, and this is only when I started getting into it, like, if you can get 10 to 15 years out of a snake, that's an old snake. Yeah. To me, that's pathetic now. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, stories now. There's a zoo in the US at the moment. It's got a ball python that's just hit 60 years old. And a clutch of eggs. And it laid yeah. a clutch of eggs. Amazing. 60 years <laughs> yeah. old. That's how long things should be living. Yeah, there were, there were, there's a green tree python that was up there 35 or 40 years old. Yeah, and most green well. tree pythons don't live long at all because no. people keep them terribly most of the time. Mm. Tim's yeah. Mertens. That was in its yeah, 40s. Yeah, that was it? in its 40s, yeah, mm. Mertens. That's that impressive was, too. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, we need to. We are all looking after them a bit better. I think. um, I mean, the reason I want to do a YouTube channel and things is um, is to show that we should be giving them more space as well. Like I I do. I use tubs. You've been to mine. I've got tubs. I use tubs. Uh, You use tubs. We we use vision racks and things. Um, and they're good. They have their place. You have to look at what size animal you've got in those tubs. You can't have a adult female carpet python that you're breeding and it's laying eggs in a CB70 um, tub. You know, it's not fair. How can you do yeah, that? Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's hard though just, when you've got big, it's going to sound bad, big but you get those big collections, big breeders mm. that say, yeah, nine kilo bread lie does fine in a vision tub uh, python, because it yeah. breeds. Mm. Yeah, yeah, breeding means hard. nothing. Like most animals will breed yeah. to survive. We've got past yeah. that point of... of uh, but when you or, hear uh, what most of us have, but and it, you hear when you hear someone that has a platform say something like that, yeah. a lot of younger people that are getting into it go, yeah. "Oh yeah, it's fine." Yeah, there are always people that we're looking up to, and that we're, hurts. We're up that hurts the hobby as mm. well. Yeah. yeah, and it hurts the animals, yeah. which I care much mm. more about than the hobby. Uh, yeah, and and you know if we want um, regulators involved in our hobby, we're going the right way about it. You yeah, know, by by treating our animals. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not just Australia. Australia seems to be going down that route at the moment for me in the last few years of like, you know, they, they do it in Europe where I come from, you know, uh, England in, in America and everything. You see collections like that. Um, I'm wary of the fact that 
I'm I'm a bit wary of the fact of putting out there that to try and make people guilty for keeping bigger snakes in small tubs because um, that still might be the best person to look after those snakes if they're doing other things to enrich them. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah, there, there could I'm be someone... about pythons here. Yeah, there could be someone that's keeping a carpet python in an enclosure that's four metres by four metres. Doesn't mean they're keeping it right, no, in, that's right. in that exactly. enclosure. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so someone can keep, you know, a, a snake in a smaller setup of a tub or anything if that's easier for them main, to maintain. But give them some enrichment. You know, do some stuff that give will them enrich some substrate them. that they can actually and, move on. And I'm saying things that five years ago... Um, or, or maybe a bit more, maybe five years ago, uh, I'd have, if you would have said that to me, I'd have probably been sat here thinking, eh, greeny. Yeah. That's not, but, but it's true. Like, why, why are we not giving our pythons some enrichment and yeah. things, you know? Um, and that, that's what I want to put out there is to try and do things like that. And, but I don't want to put out there to make people feel guilty for it so that they start getting rid of their animals. I want those people that are looking after their animals and love those animals, even if they are in a tub that's not big enough or a cage that's not big enough or a cage that's too big with some instances with pythons. Um, you, you kind of, you still want to go, well, they might care for it better than, you know, a mass breeder taking it on board. And so it's, it's really strange. I don't want people to feel massively guilty about how they're keeping them unless they're keeping them really badly. I, I want them, I want people to think about it a bit more and just and try that's and do things a do. little bit better. Just and it's just a little thing. A bit of education yeah. and a bit better. Yeah. Um, we do it for other animals. Why, why is I it so it is, lagging yeah. with reptiles? It yeah. is catching on though more like for as bad as it is the bee mums and the snake mums, you know, like boop and snoop and all that dumb yep. stuff. Um, for all of that, <laughs> sorry, they, they are, I do see a lot of them doing a lot more enrichment than what reptiles have ever seen. Yeah, know, those I'd... beardies do look happy on their hammocks. <laughs> <laughs> but they're out of the cage. <laughs> <more. laughs> and you do see them doing like climbing pegboards for, you know, different species of snakes. Yeah. And exercises so think, enrichment. Yeah, so that is starting to catch on because I think they're becoming a more mainstream pet. That has it ups and it's down. Like we do see some really terrible husbandry because they're becoming more mainstream. But you do, on the other hand, do see some of this more enrichment starting mm. to come in uh, for reptiles, which hasn't been a big thing. I don't know why enrichment for reptiles has never been a huge thing. It was always stick it in a box, give it some heat, and you're fine. And I suppose we were all there five, ten years ago. So exactly it's right. progress, and it is. I do start to seeing there's some really cool enrichment pages for reptiles now coming through. Yeah, and that that's exactly right. Like I'm I'm not having a dig because I've my my whole keeping strategy you know, five years and 20 years ago or whatever was I keep pythons and boas in the UK. Um, my, the best way I can keep those animals is with as little amount of stress as possible. Yep. Not strictly true. You know, you give them some stress. We all yep. need some stress. Enrichment stress, not I'm going to turn their heating off for a yep. week and make them freeze. Like that's a different stress, like enrichment stress. Um and we were also brought up, you know, they, they live in burrows in the ground. They don't really come out. They don't do much, which to a certain extent is quite true. Pythons aren't as much of a roamer as a, as a brown snake or, or, or a monitor lizard or, or something. Um, so, you know, there's some truth to it. I just think that we've used it, um, for, for our own, uh, minds to keep them in these smaller situations 
without stress and that. And back then, I was absolutely doing the right thing to what we all thought. Yeah. Now, I change it up and I want to give them some enrichment. I want to... You Even know. adding things like UV, we've started adding UV to a lot of our snakes and seeing the difference that that creates within their behaviour and colouring, patterning, um, feed response, what they're laying, uh, you know, offspring. When it all can, of those. They, do they need it? Probably not. No. Can they cope without it? Probably. Definitely. We'd would it that. do them some good if they had it? Of course it bloody would. Yeah. They, if you they see they them actively the use it, obviously they're getting something out yeah. of it. Yeah. They, they come to out watch a snake sun. come out at the same time yeah. every day and sit under the UV, yeah. it's getting something from mm-hmm. that. It has to. Mm-hmm. And we've got a few species that, you know, pygmy pythons, for example, we've got mm-hmm. one that will come out and bask half its body under the UV every afternoon at the same time. Um, pygmy stimmies, the same. We've got some of those mm-hmm. that will actively come out and sit in the UV um, get their basking and then disappear back into a crevice and then you won't see them again until yeah. they come out and hunt again at night. So I think it's just giving things the option, trying to improve it, seeing if we do see a difference. It's not – you can't do it with every species, mm. especially if they have large but, collections. Yeah, it's not imperative, but can no. it do them – yeah, it's, it can actually it can actually definitely do them good. I mean, any, you know, I, maybe 20 years ago I might have gone, don't be stupid, pythons don't need you, really don't do that. it. Like, but now and you even kind the way of we provide heat as well. And I'm I'm not switched to say they need UV. No. We have to give them UV. I'm just switched to say they would be way better off with it. Like, why? Yeah, do it if you can do it. But we keep stuff in tubs and things. Green trees is my biggest shit bit with the UV. I'd love to give my green trees UV. Yeah, but it makes my green trees too hot, which is an adverse effect for me. With my greens. Yeah. So it'd be good if there was a way of giving them UV. Um, obviously, I'm getting outside just, every now and then. Just move to cans. I um, keep mine outside. Yeah, it's <laughs> rough as hell up there. Like. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I'd love to do that, but it gets your green trees too hot. You don't yeah. want green trees hot. Right? Um, yeah, it's, it's all stuff that we're learning. And, you know, someone like me, I've been keeping pythons for, I don't know, 30-plus years, whatever it is, seriously keeping pythons for 20-plus years, like um, – and I've changed so much and in how I think I mean, about I've changed them. a lot in the last 15. Yeah. It's, know, it's, it's been a huge change. I, I think, think it is the recent years that have yeah. I've done changes. massive changes since I started keeping. I used to keep everything in racks and I kept a lot of elapids for a long time as well. And yeah. elapids are a lot more active than a python. Yeah, and I was keeping them like, in racks, mm. taipans in racks and brown snakes. And all they do is just roam all day mm. around in there. Doesn't sit right with me now. Even adding a substrate into an enclosure gives another element to that yeah. enclosure where the snake can go down into the substrate and burrow around. And I found that a lot with elapids as well. Once I started keeping them on two inches of substrate, they mm. spend all their time in it and yeah, under it and going yeah. in and out. And they have yeah. tunnels through it everywhere. And, they, and they wouldn't roam as much mm. as what they did when they were living on butcher's paper or newspaper. Mm. So maybe the roaming as well was a – they're not so comfortable mm. with where they are. They're trying to find somewhere to go. Yeah. I don't mm. know. Maybe I'm looking Absolutely. into it too much. Yeah. But no, that sounds right. Mm. Yeah, they're but just it's, just, it's progress. We just have to keep learning. Mm. I think that's the most important thing. You can't penalise people for yeah. doing it the way that they've been told to do it, but everyone should be open to learning new things. Like mm. I was saying and like earlier. you say, if you've got a lapid in a tub and you're not comfortable with it, do something about it. Yeah. Put them in a cage, give them mm. that extra enrichment. Like I, I do with the pythons, I put handfuls of cut grass or something yeah. in the racks every now and then. and they, You see them actually go in and start investigating it. Yeah. And that's the enrichment. That's um, switching on their senses and the mm. enrichment. I've done it a couple of times where I've got a bag full of hay or something, mixed racks in 
shook it around and left it to stand for a while, taken the rats out and then put rat smelling hay in enclosures. Yeah. Because they don't always get their prey in the wild. They don't no, always no, get a feed when they not. smell it. So I, I do that. Like I normally do that just before I'm going to clean the whole collection. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you, yeah. Yeah, I used to just drag a rat around an enclosure sometimes. Yeah, right. Just make a defrosted just, rat yeah, and just I'm rub it on that. the hide yeah, or rub yeah. it on the side of the box somewhere and they'd come out. Or even if I was cleaning a lapids or something, I'd have the snake in a garbage bin or something while I was cleaning. And then I just throw a rat in the enclosure while I'm cleaning, and then when I go to put the snake back, just pull the rat back out, get rid of it again, and the snake just spends its whole time trying to find trying that to find rat, it. which probably to a lot of people would sound cruel because it's not getting its food, but it's they never get their natural. food. They're snakes. Yeah. Yeah. They're out yeah. hunting yeah. all the time Changing looking for food. regimes mm. is probably yeah. another one. Like, it doesn't need to be fed every day. No. It doesn't need to be fed every week or no. every eight days or ten Luckily, days. Luckily, I'm really slack at sticking yeah, to me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I am terrible with that. But I used to be a heavy feeder back in the day as well. I used to feed things a lot. Yeah. Wait yeah. and see what Not their anymore. body language tells you when they're cruising, when they're active, and then let them go for a bit. Let them think about it. Let them actively hunt because, like you said, they're not getting mm. a feed item every time they come out to hunt like that roughy that we saw just to put it in there again for you <laughs> up in the Kimberleys. Like that was in ambush every night for the three or four nights that well, we were there. You're okay. You saying it, not me. Uh, the mon- so- I feel the love. The one near the Monjons. Yeah, that yeah. was the one. So, you know, Same every night. night it was out there and it didn't get a feed. It was hungry. It was looking for food, but it didn't get one for the whole time we were there. So I think it's important to try and, mm. you know, even add in some of that sort of enrichment for them as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because like people say on, on, you know, on other media, in books, everything, like, a green tree python will eat tonight in two nights' time. It will go back to that. My green pythons at home will eat probably an ambush every, every single yeah. night. Yeah, they, Even yeah. if I fed them a big meal the night before, yep. they'll be they'll an ambush the next night. Even in Iron Range a few years back, we are up there with a couple of friends and we found this green python in ambush near our camp and it caught a melamies that night and then was back down the following night with a big bulge in its belly. And then two nights later, it caught an even bigger melamies and then we didn't see it for a couple of days. It was yeah. just sitting in the tree. Obviously, it got enough by that yeah. point. But yeah, I mean, my scrubs would eat every day if I let them. But they're my flat scrub, out. my big female, would eat me every day. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, you know, I mean, my male might only get fed once every two months. Mm. Yeah, and then he might get a big feed, and then he might have half a dozen small feeds in between, and then he might go for another month or so without a feed, and just chop and change, make him think about it, make it work, make him cruise the enclosure at night time, sit in ambush, do all that natural behaviour. Um, I think it keeps them lean and if they're just fed constantly, you just end up with these big fat slugs that have quite shortened lifespan. Mm. When you're making them move and use all the space that they have, you're ending up with something that's a lot healthier and a lot more muscle and not as much fat. Yeah. You've actually just got a species that's really hard to judge that at, at the um, crocodile park, the um, blood pythons. Yeah. Mm. They're like almost impossible to judge when you've gotten too fat, too skinny, like hard python to keep. They just look like a fat slug all the time. Yeah. 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 And because they don't move, you can't really tell what they're doing a lot of the time. And they need every chance they got as well. You've Mm. got to make sure you don't feed them too much because they never move. Mm. So they're not burning anything off. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, They're they're very, well, used to keep them in England and yeah, they can be very hard to judge because all of a sudden you've just got like a fat slug of a snake Mm. that you can't burn it off. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's, it's hard with pythons, I think, certainly, but. 
It's kind of good with venomous because they'll roam around. Yeah, yeah. It's easy. It's energy. easy to overfeed them as well. And people yeah. always thought that you feed venomous a lot because their metabolism faster because they're crapping all the time. Yeah. But they put on weight so fast as well. Certain species, some need to eat a bit more than others. But things like death adders, they hardly ever need to eat. They can get by on a few meals a year. Mm. I had, I've got an adder at home that is a male that goes off his food usually ju- during the breeding season. But he stopped feeding in May last year. And he took his first feed just before we started this trip. He just refused up until that point and mm. then took a rat and he's back. He didn't even lose any body condition in that yeah. period of time. That's a long time without food. Yeah, cool. In 10 months. Well, I um, I really like drove that onto the reptile situation there because I was bored of all your mammal talk. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> so I wanted to break it. I was running so with that. That's great. Yeah, the reptile path. <laughs> Thanks for that. That is our yeah. passion. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we do. Yeah. So you've got like your zookeeping education side, then you've got your herping out in the field side, and then you've got your keeping side, and you try to balance <laughs> the three. So that's yeah. that's yeah. the goal. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. And you also um, you also have a YouTube channel. We do, The Natural Herb Keeper. Um, so we, in part of travelling around, looking at where our animals are living in the wild, what sort of microhabitats they're living in, we wanted to start recreating that as much as we could at home. So that's where we started mock rocking. Um, their enclosures, so fake rocks basically. So I'd been doing fake rock work at the zoo for, well, since I started, uh, so a number of years and sort of honed the technique a little bit from there and then Matt came along and I sort of showed him uh, and then he's taken it further and worked with it as well. And every time we'd post pictures of these enclosures, we'd get so many questions on how do you do that, what's it made of, you know, they're totally different, I think, Um mock rock enclosures to what most people are doing we are really finicky when it comes to making something that actually looks like a rock and not a piece of foam that's been painted with something <laughs> um, we're rather picky and well rather picky we're incredibly picky on that but we had a lot of inquiries about how to do it so that's where the youtube channel originally started was just for um showing how we do it building these enclosures uh, we, we have sort of started down that bioactive line a little bit it's not suited for all species but you can do it with some species it's still a lot of trial and error with us we're trying to work out which in- substrates grow plants the depths that you need the lighting that you need we're experimenting with all of that so it's to showcase uh, that side of the keeping and trying to get people to think a little bit more outside the box um, and this is what your enclosure can look like. Um, you know, you can have something really nice in your lounge room. You don't have to have a tub hidden under your bed so that no one can see it because you have a snake. Um, and then from that, we've started bringing in the herping side of things as well because I think it's important to show people where their animal is coming from because um, a lot of people don't have any idea where the carpet python or the stimpsons or children's or blackhead or whatever it is that they're keeping at home. They have no idea what habitat it comes from. So by showing the herping side of things, we're hopefully educating people a little bit on this is what the habitat looks like. Um, the green pythons was a perfect one. You know, mm, we could yeah, go up to Cape York yeah. and we're showing them, okay, this is how it sits. This is the way they perch, uh, you know, when they're in ambush at night. This is then where they're perching through the day and how they're perching through the day. And, like, we found passion fruit vines that had been eaten and that's where – all the greens were hanging around at night. So you know that they're tracking the small mammals that were eating those passion fruits. Um, and then we were able to find them through the day and sort of go, okay, you can see where it's sitting. It's getting some UV, it's part shade, uh, regulating body temperature, coming back down at night. 
And that's sort of what the whole aim of the page is just to increase the standard of husbandry and try and make people think a little bit more about the natural behaviour of the animal and how they can incorporate some things uh, into their own enclosures at home to get that sort of similar result or at least start down that track again in proving that welfare. People should definitely check that out because, geez, some of those enclosures, like your own Pelly enclosure and, and things like that, oh, my God, that's just And even, insane. I mean, we're still learning too. So we refine our techniques and change things up and we're happy to talk to people about them if they have mm. any questions. And even this trip, like we were down the Nullarbor looking at where the Nullarbor bearded dragon is, which is the little dude that I have at home, mm. and going, well, that doesn't look like what I built, so <laughs> now I'm going to have to go back and remodel that. But you sit that. there with pictures. Yeah, and mimic, I do. Like from yeah. pictures that you've taken, like yeah. what? It's and, like, and the pictures were from the Nullarbor. They were from amazing. one of Matt's trips, previous trips down there. That I went from that, but um, mm. yeah, I didn't change it up again. Yeah, to see it for yourself. That's that a little I did. bit different. And did, how vast that habitat is too. So it was a huge difference mm. from one area of that habitat to another. So that'll be a project when I get home. Is uh, redo his cage a little bit. And well, I think like with. that's one of the greatest things that's happening in the hobby. Like that, people can have these amazing looking enclosures. I think there's almost certain species, like probably certainly like frogs and things, that almost should be in those bioactive, yeah. real setups, you know, and, and stuff. Um, yeah, it's insane. You just check it out. Yeah, some species Absolutely just brilliant. thrive in them. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously a python, a big scrub python, is never going to work in a little. No. Bioactive yeah. setup. I mean, um, my scrubs are outside. But, they, so that's bioactive. You know, it is. It's full of plants. <laughs> it's got a pond. It's got frogs yeah. living in there. Yeah. Um, but I live in North Queensland where, you know, I have to throw the scrubbies off the fence, the wild ones, and send them back out. So <laughs> we're in the perfect climate for it. Um, mm. You can replicate it with big animals, but it's hard. And, mm. You know, so, but there are other ways you can still do nice, like the Owen Pellies, you can do the, the rock work and yeah. provide the crevices. And like Matt built in the Owen Pelly enclosures, like the inbuilt hide boxes, hide boxes which is a really cool idea that, you know, we want to utilize in a few other enclosures, gives them somewhere to hide, doesn't look ugly, you can still access it. Mm. Um, so it's just thinking outside the box from what we've always thought is the only way to do things. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Amazing. Yeah, we're going to put a link to that channel on yeah. our website for those that don't know, but I'm sure everyone listening does know. I think everyone <laughs> probably does, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's been really popular. You guys have been really popular. Like, yeah, amazing. And Thanks so I'll much get for some, coming uh, here. videos out from this trip too. Yeah. So. Expect a video every 12 months. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're not, they don't, you're not they don't come out very often. <laughs> It takes a lot of time. I was going to say, where do you guys find the time to do any of this? But I don't do any of it. Yeah. I can't take any credit. <laughs> you can. Of, I drive the car. There's a lot of effort to edit videos and put them together. But you drive a bit. Don't yeah. Try and get them out. <laughs> it is hard work. <laughs> it is, yeah. I People get it. don't understand how hard it is until no. you actually do it. And yeah. Yeah, editing YouTube videos or podcasts or any of that takes a hell of a lot of work. Right, well, I've got to ask you this random question. Um, oh, this is going to be Someone random. gives you – it's going to be – Bloody random. Okay, <laughs> someone gives you $50 million, guys. What do you do? Shit. I know it's going to be a lot more of the same, but what would you do? Mm. Buying a wildlife park, I think. I'd buy a desert island and move there where there's no people. You would, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'd just become a proper proper introvert and just disappear. Uh, Grow the beard longer. Yeah. <laughs> Go complete feral. Oh, I'd like to buy a wildlife park. Yeah. 
and, and, and shut it down to business. shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not open to the public, yeah. though. It's, just it's open, not for you. Yeah. It's just for Especially me. if you had an unlimited budget, you know, like 50 mil, you could do a fair bit of that. Yeah. You could do some cool ideas and that's always a I have lots of ideas in my head of what I'd like to do at the Wildlife I mean, Park to make what, it different. What's your, what's your favourite Wildlife Park Ooh. in Australia that you've seen? There is an obvious answer to this, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shit. We can edit oh, this out. <laughs> oh, shit. Animals Anonymous. This guy. Oh, oh well, there we go. <laughs> Cheers, Matt. No worries. Wow. This is the dream, right? Have a house full I'd of animals. Love, I'd this love is, this place. Yeah. This is awesome. That's why we'd buy a zoo, so we could just have our own. Favourite wildlife park that I've been to. It's a hard That's one. really mine. tough. You know yours? I do know mine. A lot of Could I guess? Sorry, you, Sue. You, you would know. Is it Australian right? Reptile Park? Yeah. Yeah, I was really taken aback with Australian Reptile Park. So, just to give you time to think about it, <laughs> Australian Reptile Park, I think, is amazing in respects that they've, they've got amazing animals. Um, but the actual rooms that everything's in, like rooms, rooms that everything's in, looks amazing. It's well done up. And the education... As you're going around, which is a big thing for me, is mm. the education. Regular um, shows. Regular yeah. shows. You've got like the tree with the hollows. Yeah, it drives it home. Because no one reads the signs when they do that. For, no. you know. um, and, and just the general, not because it's a reptile park, and I'm Steve and I love reptiles. Oh, they're into mammals and birds and it's, inverts. It, and I just think as a place to visit, I think it's awesome. Same as Adelaide Zoo, to actually walk around and see the beautiful botanic side. Mm. To to Adelaide, I think is amazing. Yeah. So, did you guys have an answer? I'm just thinking. But just obviously, thinking. besides Hartley, besides Hartley, take Hartley's, 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 Hartley's out of it. Yeah. Sorry, would yeah. you not just asking me? <laughs> Sorry, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to ARP yet. One of my best, one of my best mates works okay. at Australian Reptile Park. Runs the reptile section there, mm. Jake. Yep. I don't know if I can give Good him that going. ego boost by telling him that that's the best <laughs> park. No, two of us don't you? Good job, good job, Jake. I do love it there, and I like what they do, and I think. Jake and Tim and all that are doing yeah. a fantastic and then job. Look at and I know both of them. Aussie Ark They're both as well. good dudes. Yeah. You know, well, every, Aussie Ark's right. brilliant. Yeah, I really thing, enjoyed Aussie yeah. Ark when I was yeah. there. Aussie Ark's probably one of the favourite places I've been, to be honest. Just the enclosures are well, that's so a big. Jake's ass, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't work there, so. Yeah. Aussie Ark's impressive. As far as wildlife parks go, though, I really like Alice Springs Desert Park. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, the way yeah. it's set blends out. Into the it landscape. blends into the landscape. It shows the habitats. They're nocturnal nice. houses, wicked. Yeah. Same with Ter- Territory Wildlife Park. Yeah. Their nocturnal Territory. house is brilliant. Yeah. Bird, I, I just really like nocturnal houses. They're yeah. one of my favourite things at parks, yeah. and I wish we had one where we do, where we work. We yeah. don't, unfortunately. Hopefully one day. But probably Alice Desert Park yeah. would be my favourite park. That was a yeah, yeah. It was good. It's just yeah. it's different, and I like different. Mm. Yeah. The way they do things. So, their nocturnal yeah. house is the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere, isn't it? Or I believe I remember hearing so. that. Yeah. Lots of mammals in there that you yeah. don't see. I also like seeing animals that you don't see at other zoos because yeah. most zoos have the same collections, yeah. it's the same animals, the same draw kind of stuff. Kind that most of the public in Australia. Right? Yeah, and the mm. public knows. We all know the general public knows about ten different Australian animals, and that's it. Everything oh, yeah. else, anything smaller than a kangaroo is a rat, mm. pretty much. Yeah. But these places display all these small mammals that you don't see anywhere else. And I find that, to me as an animal person, that's really impressive to see. But I don't know how a general member of the public that has no interest in animals sees that. 
Mm. If you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, the odd yeah, kid. There'll be a kid that was like, you know, a young version of us guys. That'll yeah, be exactly. There going, Whoa, and they'll yeah, get no, taken. There's a, there's a Narbalek. And that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but the Narbalek, yeah. yeah. That makes it worth it, though, doesn't it? I think get, so. You know, another young yes. animal it, enthusiast out there fighting for the, you know, survival of all these little creatures. Even when I went to Territory Wildlife Park and they had the only black wallaroo on display, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. It's like I've seen one in the wild once a long time ago from a distance and now I get to see one in captivity and it's cooler than I ever thought it was and I just stood there for ages just watching it but I don't know if it's because I'm an animal nerd at the same time nothing wrong with that that's but cool I like different yeah. stuff different yeah. things on display yeah. not just the same like the draw card animals are cool it's cool to go and see a lion and a giraffe and a tiger and that sort of stuff but you see them everywhere mm. every zoo has those sorts of things and we're, yeah I guess we are trying to do that at at Hartley's as well. Oh, you guys trying. do an amazing job there at Hartley's. Yeah, um, we're always trying to increase the collection and mm. bring in things that have a conservation method. We definitely have some message strange well. animals on display yeah. that other places don't have. Yeah. Saw like my we- first red-legged paddy melon there. Yeah. Yep, got lots of them. <laughs> we just got our spectacled flying foxes, uh, which are, you know, an endangered species, likely to be uplisted to critically endangered Mammals, Steve. We're yeah. talking mammals now, Steve. Sure, I'll change it. We're, prob- we're probably <laughs> only yeah. we're probably the only zoo to have tenotus skinks on display. It's true. Oh, well, I don't know why, but that's we like do. The we biggest do group have- of reptiles in <laughs> yeah. Australia. Isn't it? There's yeah. over a hundred tenotus. Yeah, and, like, and we've got them. Yeah. one species. So, so one t- one in ten Australian reptiles is a tenotus yeah, or something. Yeah, <laughs> we just try and get, yeah, try and get some of that odd stuff in and educate people a little bit. And that's great. Make it a bit different, so it's something that they actually have to think about. Maybe if they have to think about something, they might take it a little bit further. Mm. It's not just the stock standard eastern grey kangaroo and a koala yep. on a branch. I like the fact as yeah. well that every now and then you do get those little kids that come in and they're little animal nuts and they just think it's the greatest thing ever because they've got their favourite animal. We've got this kid that comes and he's there every week and he likes spiders. Yeah. And he comes in to walk around the park, not even to see the spiders on display, just to see the spiders that are around the park because we get the giant orb weavers. I saw them. And he comes yeah. to look at those and asks, we get tarantula burrows in the walls and he comes and looks at the tarantula burrows and asks him if you can get a bit of grass and try and get a tarantula to come out of the burrow for him. And he's just obsessed with spiders. But that's to me, that's awesome. That's he's so yeah. interested and he, some, he may grow up to be an animal person that – Quite likely. Yeah, that wants to protect yeah. the environment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or he'll get a killed by of- a spider. Be one of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, now, I spend most of my time thinking about how to engage people. So, it, you know, I'm open to ideas. It's one of the hardest things in the world to get people on board and get them passionate. But kids. It's also kids important. are so much easier than adults. Adults have already got their ways, I've found, and they don't want to be educated. But even sometimes some adults, do. If you can get them up close to things and but get I them seeing something – and, you know, you take away the fear of it and get them to look at it. And but often if you can get their kid int- interested as well, yeah. it gets them interested. Mm. I found that as well with my family. They weren't really animal people at all. But I found especially my dad, he be- became very interested in snakes and reptiles and stuff once I got so interested much. because yeah. I was interested in it. And because I was interested in it, he was sort of joining Facebook pages <laughs> like of herp photography and then following what was going on and, Educating yeah, himself on snakes, and then when he'd go to work and stuff, people there'd be snakes, and he'd say, "No, you just let the snake go," type thing. You don't have to try and kill it or anything like that. I do, see and that's that brilliant to I me. Do see that, yeah, yeah, that's great. The fact that he's interested. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that with other people's folks doing that. Um, you, you both of you guys, your passion's infectious. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well, I've found out like new things. You know, we all 
I know you, Matt, because of our reptiles and we're reptile nuts and, and you know, we're, we're all reptile nutters here. And But to sit here and find out how you both are into the mammals and, and the plants and everything as well, it's just like, shit. Disappointing. So yeah. Is that the <laughs> you're looking for, Stacey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it works so together, right? Like you can't have... We yeah. can't have our reptiles without. Well, I've only really animals. started working it out for the last five years of, of you know doing this podcast, hanging out with Adrian and things. You know, I'll be honest, I, I was tunnel vision. Oh, me too, for not, a long time. Not just for like, not just reptiles, but pythons and boas. Like my tunnel vision was ridiculous until the last five I years, think, yeah, where I'm all of a sudden guilty. into plants, the undergrowth, the 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 mammals, insects. I mean, I've always been into insects, but. Um, yeah, it's just, I love it. I think this last five years have been the best five years of my life yeah, because yeah. of opening up that. Getting horizon. into more stuff as well just made it so much more interesting traveling as mm. well because I'd get disappointed if I would do a trip and I didn't see many reptiles, but now I'll get excited if I see a new mammal or a new bird yeah. or even a nice habitat. Mm. Yeah. I just like being out in the desert yeah. and seeing red sand. And it gets plant. me happy. Yeah, yeah. plants and all that mm. sort of stuff. I always was so, I was never that interested and now I love them. I think yeah. it's just conservation in general. We, we can't yeah. end it there. Not <laughs> <laughs> well, guys. Um, <laughs> no, uh, that's awesome. I've really enjoyed that. That was brilliant, guys. Thank you so much. And it was a Thank real you. pleasure meeting you both in person. It was, yeah, thanks for having us. This thanks place is awesome. We'd love to come back up there, up north, and have you guys on the we show again if we can. Yeah, and yeah for sure. Come we'll up to Hartley's again. We'll give you a tour of the wet tropics. That'll I'll show you some wonderful. new mammals. Yes, yes please. Yeah. Please do. Take Steve. Sure. We'll take Steve. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, thank you so much. Again, we'll have all those details on, on our website. And everybody, thank you for listening.